The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, as you know, we have been going through the book of Ephesians, right? We, we have finished our study through the first three chapters. And so the book of Ephesians, um, it's really broken down into two separate sections. The, the first three chapters focus on gospel truth, what, what, what Jesus has done for us and who we are now in him, what the gospel is and now what our gospel identity is as a result of what he has done for us. And then the second half primarily focuses on gospel living, that in light of what Jesus has done for us and in light of who we now are in him, this is what we are to now do for Christ by his grace and in the power of his spirit. Well, well, that said, to, to help us make this transition from gospel doctrine or gospel truth to gospel living that our discipleship would be a cross-shaped discipleship, that it's fueled by the gospel, that's driven by the gospel, I thought it would be helpful uh, to take a step away for one week and go to the words of our Savior. I, I think there's nothing better to really set the, tra- the, next, the trajectory for the next three chapters than to hear from Jesus that, okay, what Paul is about to teach here, that, that our discipleship should be gospel-driven, it's not an extrapolation. It's not, a, it's not something original to the Apostle Paul. No, everything derives from Jesus' teaching and his work through his death and his resurrection on the cross. And so with that said, we're going to take one week break. We're going to go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. If you didn't bring your Bible today, that's okay. Pull out your phone and, man, forgive my voice. Uh, you're going to hear it crack a few times, but just bear with me. But, uh, but if you don't have your Bible, then pull out your phone and go to the Bible app in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Some of you, maybe you all have seen the movie Unbroken. How many of you have seen that movie Unbroken? Okay, if you haven't, I encourage you uh, to watch it. It's a, it's a fantastic movie. And for those of you who haven't the movie, it's a true story about an Olympian turned soldier named Louis Zamperini. Who would, he would ultimately endure the unimaginable conditions of a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. And, and there's a scene in the movie near the beginning where Zamperini, he's boarding a train. So he's boarding a train to go to the Olympics. He, he was a 400-meter runner. and uh, yeah, So he was boarding this train to head to the Olympics. And so as the train is departing the station, Lewis's brother shouts out to him, one, min- one minute of pain, that's about how long it took to run the 400 meters, one minute of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. And throughout the movie, Zamperini, he would reflect upon this line from his brother. During that that grueling moments of his Olympic race, to when his plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean, and when he was stranded at sea for 47 days. 47 days he was stranded at sea, and he survived. To, To when he endured the brutal conditions 
of the POW camp. That I, I don't know whether it happened in his life or not, or if it was good cinematography. Uh, it would it would go back to his brother's line of one minute of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. And so remembering this line from his brother, it both saved and shaped, it sustained him through the harsh circumstances he experienced. Fantastic movie. And, and, and just as a side note, later in life, Louis Zamperini, he was saved by Christ during a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. And toward the end of his life, he was actually able to travel back to Japan to meet his POW, uh, uh, the people who kept him in the, uh, the POW camp. He met them face to face. He sat down and he got to tell them how he had forgiven them of what they had done to him because of Christ's forgiving love for him. And so what a beautiful visual depiction of the transforming power of the grace of God, of how God can take someone who was brutally who brutally endured the sufferings from another human and how God was able to change their heart to later in life be able to forgive those who did that to him. But, but why? So why do I share this story with you this morning? Well, there are defining moments in life that shape us, that make us who we are. For Louis Zamperini, it was that moment that his brother said, a minute of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. But for the Christian We will see this morning in our text today that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it both defines and it shapes our discipleship. The cross of Christ defines and shapes our discipleship. And so, so to maybe get you up to speed, I know we're, we're kind of parachuting into the gospel of Mark, uh, jumping right into chapter 10. And so to catch you up to speed uh, where the narrative is in this gospel, uh, much of Jesus's ministry up to this point, it occurred in the northern Galilee region and the surrounding regions around Galilee. But we see in our text today that Jesus begins to centralize his ministry on one place, and that is Jerusalem, and for one purpose, and that is the cross. And so our passage this morning, it begins with the, it begins the passion narrative in Mark's gospel. And so for us to really understand the full weight of our text this morning, we must remember that these teachings of Jesus regarding discipleship, they are in context of his coming cross. The cross is set before him. In Luke chapter nine, it would say this, that Jesus set his face. He, he, he set his face toward Jerusalem, a resolute focus on the cross. And so his teaching this morning is in light of his coming cross. Or maybe to put it another way, Christian discipleship, is, again, is defined and shaped by the cross. And that's the main point of our sermon this morning. And so with that being said, let's look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Read along with me. And, and again, church, after I read this, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond with thanks be to God. Right? And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But listen, church. And after three days, he will rise. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten, when they heard this, when, when they heard that James and John were jockeying for prominence, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. And we would be both astounded by the humility of our Savior and that we would be propelled then to live a life that is shaped by his humility and that is shaped by his cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in the first half of our passage, we see what motivates and sustains us in our cross-shaped Discipleship, And that's the promises of the Son of Man. Notice in verse 32, Jesus, he comforts the fears of his followers by reassuring them of the certainty of God's redemptive plan. That, that this cross that he was about to endure, it wasn't something that was in the hands of the Roman soldiers or the Roman uh, uh, rulers. No, this was prepared from before the foundation of the earth. And so that's why Jesus could say with great certainty, That what I've been telling you all along that will happen, it's now about to take place. So arrest, accusation, condemnation, humiliation, crucifixion, but then, church, resurrection. Jesus could say that one word, will, with certainty, because this was all, as Acts 4 says, in accordance with the preordained, pre-established plan of God. The greatest injustice the world would ever see was about to take place. And yet Jesus reassures his followers that he possesses all the power. He calls the shots. He holds the cards. For though the Jews and the Romans will soon deal Jesus the death blow, again, in accordance with God's predetermined plan, after three days, Jesus says, I will rise. I will prove victorious over the greatest Threat and the greatest power that Satan could ever hold. And so, Christian, listen, your hope, it rests in the promises of God, in the wills of God. But if Jesus' words of comfort and promise aren't enough to convince you, notice the one who, would, who both gives and fulfills this promise. Look at with me verse 33. Do you see that phrase, the Son of Man? 
Now, now, now this might be a, a confusing and ambiguous phrase to understand initially. What did Jesus refer to? What did he mean when he referred? This was his favorite phrase, his favorite title that he referred to himself as the son of man. Well, about 575 years earlier to Jesus's ministry, the prophet Daniel predicts that there would come the son of man. So let's let's read Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 through 14. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Uh, But you can listen along. The prophet Daniel, he said this concerning the coming son of man. He said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days to God and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. And the son of man, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so this glorious one to whom all dominion and glory and service and allegiance belongs to whom belongs all power. He is the one who comforts his followers with his promises. And he is the one, listen, church, who comforts you today with his promises as well but but contrasted with the son of man's comforting promises to his followers notice with him and you probably picked it up while we were reading notice the failure right of his followers in verses 35 through 41 now now if you just sat down one sunday afternoon and read uh, the the gospel of mark from beginning to end one thing you'll pick up one predominant theme throughout the book is the failure of the disciples And Mark is intentional in trying to highlight this fact to show us that that God, that Jesus can take the imperfect and he can transform them by his grace into followers of him. But but here we see their failure center stage, right? Read with me 30 verse 35 where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we we want. Right. Do for us what we want. Do our bidding, Jesus We know you're in your moments of agony with the cross uh, right before you, but do what we want to do. Do for us what we want. And and so I I hope you felt, right, like I did, the indignation rising up uh, when when reading that. This is what rises up within me when I read that verse, right? It's, come on, guys, Jesus just told you that he's about to enter into the darkest hour of his life. Indeed, the darkest hour that human history would ever record. And yet all you're thinking about and all you care about is yourself. All you're concerned about is your place of prominence, trying to call in some favors before it's too late. Unless we put too much on these disciples, just think, what if there was a record of history for our life uh, written down as well? We're not too far off from these disciples. But despite... His disciples' ambition for prominence. Notice Jesus' response as he asks them. Not He doesn't respond incredulously, but he responds patiently. What does he say? What do you want me to do for you? In the shadow of his cross, in the coming days before Jesus would endure the almighty wrath of God in the place of sinners, two from his inner circle are jockeying for prominence. Yet Jesus doesn't respond how we would, right? Think about it. You, 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 get, you, get, a, you get something. You're, you're, you're three, four weeks out. You say you have five weeks to live. 
And instead of your family members coming to you, just try to spend time for you. All they're wanting to talk to you about is the will. Well, what am I going to get from you when you're gone? That, that's what the disciples are doing with Jesus here. But Jesus, he doesn't respond indignantly as you or I might. We wouldn't feel hurt and, and let bitterness creep up within our hearts. No, Jesus, he responds in patience. And so see the character of our Savior and his patient love put on display for them and for us as well. So, so notice James's and John's self-confidence, their presumption and their self-confidence that they highlighted in verses 37 through 39, where Jesus says, are you able to drink the same cup that I am? Are, are you able to endure the same sufferings that I am about to endure? And they said, yeah, yeah, of course, we're able, we can do that. That's, that's not a big deal. And so when we come to these verses, it's important for us to define what Jesus is referring to when he asked James and John whether they were able to drink of the same cup and be immersed in the same baptism he was about to partake in, right? It, 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 later in Mark fourteen thirty six, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to his father and he asks them, he asks him what? To remove what? To remove this cup from me. This cup refers to the wrath of God. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, Father, if there's any other way to save hopeless sinners, remove the necessity of me enduring your wrath in their place. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. And so this cup, in one sense, it refers to the wrath of God. And so is that what Jesus is telling his disciples? Are you able to endure the wrath of God to endure this cup in the same way that I am? Well, no, that's not what Jesus is referring to because Jesus says that they will drink of this cup. Right? And, and there's only one who can and who did endure God's wrath for sinners, and that's Jesus Christ. And, and so here we see the importance in, right? we've talked about on Wednesday evenings, the importance of context. Right, Context helps us to determine meaning. What, what, what is Jesus referring to in this passage? And that helps us to understand what this means then, what James and John would later endure. The, the context helps us to understand that this is in reference to the cup and uh, baptism is in reference to Jesus's physical sufferings, what he would endure physically on the cross. And later in scripture, right, we see this prediction fulfilled as James is beheaded and as John is, uh, suffers and is uh, exiled on the island of Patmos, both for faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus. And, and so they come up to Jesus with presumption and with pride. Jesus responds in patience and in love. And Jesus then, knowing that this is sowing division among his disciples, he, the great peacemaker, uses the failure of his followers to teach them two key purposes of his cross. And so read with me verses 42 through 45. Jesus called to them and he said to them, you know that those who consider, consider rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, right? They, 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 they're, they're very showy. In their authority over you. They're self-seeking. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came to, uh, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And in these verses we see, number one, that the ultimate purpose of the cross is to ransom sinners by Jesus's substitutionary death. And we'll talk about that, what that means. But, but that word ransom here, it refers to the price 
paid to free a slave or a prisoner from their captivity. And so to illustrate this word, you may remember the name Sojourner Truth from your history classes. And if you don't, well, I'll give you a little refresher this morning. But Sojourner Truth, she was born a slave in New York, and she was bought and sold four times during her life. And she, she was subjected to harsh physical labor and violent punishment by her slave owners. In 1827, a year before New York's law that would free slaves, before that took effect, Sojourner Truth, she escaped with her infant Sophia to a nearby abolitionist family, the Van Wagners. And in an amazing act of mercy, the Van Wagner family purchased Sojourner Truth's freedom for $20, right? That doesn't seem a lot today, but, but back then was considerable. In other words, the Van Wagner family, in mercy, ransomed Sojourner Truth and her daughter. Now, after this, after her newfound freedom, Sojourner Truth would later go on in life to become a leading abolitionist and equal rights advocate. And through her efforts and the efforts of others, it would help lead to the passing of the 14th Amendment, the abolition of slavery. And so again, this word ransom here that Jesus uses, it refers to the price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. But when we come to our passage this morning, we need to ask the question, if Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, who did Jesus pay this ransom to? Right? What was the blood of Jesus ransomed for? Well, Romans 3, it helps us to answer this question. That when Paul speaking of Christ, he says that, that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. That means a wrath-removing substitute by his blood for us to be received by faith. And so here we see that Jesus paid, he paid the ransom for our sin, not to some, as some may say, the, the devil or what have you, but he paid this ransom to God the Father so that God's justice His wrath against sin. God hates sin. Therefore, sin must be punished. But in Jesus' death, God's wrath was poured out on Christ for you, church, so that God's justice could be satisfied and so that God's mercy could be extended to you. Or as the text says in Romans 3, so that God could be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Because listen, church, if if God just saw your sin and he swept it under the rug and turned a blind eye to it, he would not be just. But, But if your sin was not atoned for, if your sin was not paid for, he could not extend mercy to you. And so the only way for him to be just and the justifier is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you hear nothing else this morning, then then hear this. The cross is the only means by which God can be both just and merciful in forgiving sinners and forgiving us. Trusting in what Jesus has done in our place on the cross, bearing God's wrath that we deserve, that's the only way we can be forgiven, restored to a right relationship, and have the hope of heaven. There is no way, uh, Peter would say this in Acts 4, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus, and it's only through believing in his death on the cross in our place, his substitutionary work. He took our sin in our place 
substituted himself, and he gives us his righteousness. It's only through believing in that that we can be reconciled to God. And so the ultimate purpose for which Jesus died on the cross was to give his life as a ransom for many. But in these verses 42 through 45, we also see that there's a second purpose for Jesus's death. And that is Jesus's lowly example in his death defines and it shapes our discipleship. He proves as the par exemplar, par excellence, I should say, of the model for our discipleship. Look at with me verse 45, where Jesus says, even the son of man, and again, remember what we talked about earlier, who this son of man was. The one who was given dominion and glory and and a kingdom. The one deserving worship from all peoples. The one who is high and lifted up, exalted above all other people and things. This is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. The creator of the universe, he became the lowliest slave of humanity to accomplish our redemption through his suffering. Let me just repeat that and and personalize it in a way. The creator of the universe, the greatest of all beings. Listen, he became your lowly slave, the text says, to accomplish your redemption through his suffering. Do you not see the love of Jesus for you? And that's why in response we sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. With all my heart rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears. We can sing that with affection and in truth when we realize the great love of Jesus for us. The eternal Son of God became the sacrificial lamb of God for you and for me. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul addresses the problem of selfishness and a me-first mentality by reminding these Christians of the condescension of the humility of Jesus and his death on the cross. When he writes in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, he says this. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And he says this, Why do we do this? Why do we seek to serve others first before serving self? Gospel living flows from gospel truth. Listen to this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In the cross, we see the clearest picture of what Jesus taught in verses 43 through 44. He didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk to the fullest extent possible. In our passage this morning, Jesus teaches us that the reward of exaltation is along the pathway of humility. And so the question Jesus asked of his disciples, I believe it's the same question he's asking us this morning. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Or to put that question another way, is your discipleship, is it defined and is it shaped by our Lord Jesus, by the cross of our Lord Jesus? Are we willing to suffer in the pathway of obedience as our Lord suffered in the pathway of his obedience to the cross? Maybe let me press the matter even further by being very specific. The only form of Christian discipleship, the only one recognized by Scripture, is one that is defined and shaped by the cross. And so I know our sanctification, it is progressive, right? It is gradual. It is often slower than what we would want. But if your discipleship, if it does not bear the marks, the resemblance of self-denying, God-glorifying, others-focused service, then you're not truly following Jesus in your discipleship. Pure and simple. The question is not, are you ready to become a radical follower of Jesus? (laughs) To do the radical things that the select few are able to do. No, Jesus is simply calling you to follow him along the pathway of a cross-shaped discipleship. I'm convinced that the greatest hindrance and the greatest threat to your Christian discipleship, it's not a lack of knowledge, right? We, we, uh, we, we don't follow Jesus because we lack knowledge per se. And it's not a lack of resources, right? We have resources on in but with the internet uh, available at our hands. No, the greatest hindrance and the greatest threat to your discipleship, to a cross-shaped discipleship and sacrificial obedience to King Jesus it's, it's this notion and this idea of the American individualism and a desire to retain our self-autonomy. The notion that we are still our sovereigns, that we are still the lords and controllers of our lives. And at the, at the end of the day, we still get to call the shots. We still get to hold the cards, right? That is the greatest threat to discipleship. And that we, like James and John thought, we are deserving of honor and prominence in recognition, This is what we deserve. Unfortunately, many of us, we have inadvertently carried over this American ideal of a self-centered, self-seeking individualism into the Christian life. It, it may be right if, if you don't think you're susceptible to this. I know I am. If you don't think you're susceptible to this, I just want to ask you, how do you spend the free margins of your money in your time. Do you spend the margins of your time and money in a way that is self-denying and self-giving or in a way that is self-rewarding and self-gratifying? Put simply, is your Christian discipleship, is it still largely shaped by American culture of self at the center? It's all about me. Or is it shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ where I deny myself to serve others? Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says this, In Jesus he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so in this moment right now, I want you to be honest. And between you and the Lord, ask this question, are are you still living for yourself in this lifetime? Or are you living for him who for our sake died? And was raised. 
According to the Bible, there's really no middle ground here. Right? What did Jesus say in, in Revelation 2, and, uh, two I believe, 2 or 3? Uh, you can check me. But what did Jesus say about those who were try to, try to, try to uh, straddle the middle fence, right? Try to stay in the middle. Those who were lukewarm, what did Jesus say? It, 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 I, I, if only I could spit you out, right? It's better that you're hot or cold, not that you're lukewarm. There's only two binary decisions here. Are we going to follow the ways of the world or are we going to follow the ways of the cross? Is your life, is it typified by self-denial? Do you give of yourself, right? Our, our time, our treasures in, in serving your brothers and sisters in Christ and in serving and seeking out the lost. Are, are you willing to suffer a little bit of your mar- margin? Some of your self-care time, right? If you read articles about like what, what you really need right now, if you're stressed, what you really need is some more self-care. But are you willing to forego that, to sacrifice some of your self-care time, to invest in and to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ? To forego a show in the evening, maybe, to speak with a neighbor. To forego purchasing that new toy, maybe instead give money to support missions. I'm not trying to guilt you one way or the other here. My, 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 heart, my heart's desire isn't to guilt you to action. <laughs> that would just be legalism. But it's just to ask you the question. Try a, a barometer of sorts for your heart. Which way do you see yourself following? The way of the world or the way of the cross? Do you find contentment and joy in what I call gospel anonymity? That, that you don't, if you do something, right? Uh, what's, our natural, what's our natural response? If we, if we maybe give some money or if we do something for someone else, we want some recognition, right? We want somebody to know that we did that, right? But what did Paul say? He said, Man, I'm, I'm serving the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 6, he said, as unknown, right? By, the, by, the, by the, uh, the view of this world and by even the church at large, I'm unknown. But he says, as unknown, yet well, yet well known by God. Listen, the Lord sees. The Lord sees what you do in secret. And he will reward you in the coming days. And so do you seek to serve him in gospel anonymity? And so maybe whatever objection may be rising within you right now, I just want you to hear again the words of our Savior. That whoever wants to be great among us must first be the servant. And whoever would be first among us must be first slave of all. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see there the connection between gospel living and gospel truth? The reason we give of ourselves, the reason we seek to serve not self but others is because and it's motivated by what Jesus has done for us. He has served us to the bitter, to the very end, church. And so in response to that, we are to do the same as well. Is your discipleship, is it defined and shaped by the cross? Our, our pursuit of this, it will never be perfect, Right. We are, we are flawed, right? We are sinful, and, and too often we are selfish. I know I am, with my time, with my margin, with our money. It's never going to be perfect, but even still, church, this should be the greatest pursuit of our life. And so as we close this morning, I want to address those maybe in the room who, maybe, maybe you say, I have, I have played the game, but I'm not trusting in Jesus. And if that's you this morning, Would you see the depth of Jesus's love for you? That he came to this earth, 
that he suffered and that he died to pay the ransom for your sin debt because he loves you. Would you repent of living for your own self-exaltation? And would you receive his free gift of salvation offered to you through Christ's death on the cross? Jesus, we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater savior. Listen, following Jesus, it's not easy, right? Jesus said, if you want an easy life, then, then, then listen, get on that wide and that easy path, right? But where does that head? Where does that lead us to? To destruction. Jesus said that the way that leads to life, right? It's what? It's hard and it's narrow. But listen, church, it leads to life. Following Jesus, it's not easy as we have seen. But what you lose in following Christ, you gain it back 10,000 fold. Let me give you a quick analogy. I'll end with this. A quick analogy. Suppose Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, they walked up to you and they said, if you give me everything you own and all the money in your bank accounts, I will give you everything I own and everything in my bank account. What would your response be? I don't know. It's going to cost me a lot here. No, right? You say, absolutely. When, when can we you know, sign on the dotted line? Let's do this. I give up what I have to gain what they have. Hear me, following Jesus, it will cost you everything. But by following Jesus, you gain incomparable treasure. For you gain Jesus himself. And so I invite you this morning to either to, for the very first time, or maybe you need to recommit to following Jesus into pursuing the priceless treasure that we have. If you are a Christian in this room, maybe, maybe the failures of Jesus' followers, let that remind you of the futility of seeking glory for yourself in this lifetime. And I pray that the cross of our Savior would shape how you assume that lowly position of servant and slave this week to serve your spouse, to serve your children, to serve your co-workers, your neighbors, your fellow church members, you fill in the blank. But listen, church, this is the paradox of the kingdom. To be great, Jesus says what? We must become low. To be first, we must become last. But we do this with joy because we're doing it for the glory of our king who gave of himself for us. And we follow his example with hope, knowing that there is future Reward waiting us in heaven. Louis Samperini's brother, he, his shout of one minute of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. It fueled him throughout numerous situations and adversities in his life. And so even more, church, may we listen to the echo from Calvary as we hear it say, a lifetime of self-denying and self-giving sacrifice, it's worth an eternity of glory that awaits you one day. So may the cross fuel us for a lifetime of Christian service. And may our lives reflect the humility and the sufferings of our Lord as his cross-shaped disciples. May we be disciples shaped by the cross for his worship, for his glory, for our good, and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, it's not, it's not easy to die to self. 
It is painful to experience death to self. But I pray, Father, that as we seek to deny self in this lifetime and to live for you, to live for others, that as we experience the pain of death to self, that you would fill us with your joy, that you would fill us with your peace, that you would fill us with your strength, your power, your grace, and Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to this very work. We don't want to just be nominal Christians who have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on everything in our life. We want Jesus to be at the center of all that we do. We want his work to shape the work that we do in this lifetime. And so, Father, pray that that you would give grace to make us a church and a people who are shaped by the cross. That the gospel truth we study, the gospel truth that we believe, the gospel truth that we place our hope and our faith in, that it would yield gospel living in our lives. We pray that as we finish our study through Ephesians, as we look at the commands of the Christian life, the the doings of the Christian life, that we would be reminded that it's not a matter of lists to check off, but it's a matter of following in the footsteps of our Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.